God has vindicated his people. God loves his people. Hosanna? All right. Let's read in unison these verses from Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. The Lord saved us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Thank you. You may be seated. Welcome to Holy Week. The world thinks it's all about Christmas. We know better. Everybody gets born, but only God does this. Amen? All right. We're going to dip into Matthew 21, the story of what Palm Sunday is all about. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go ahead of us into the village and we will find immediately a donkey tied there by the gate and her colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks you what you're doing, Say, the Lord has need of them, and they will give them to you right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet long ago. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you riding on a donkey, gentle on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd sped their, spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the palm trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. As we've just heard, their expectation was that this is God's Christ. What's going on in their hearts is, wow, this is our day. This king will rise up and give us victory over Rome. We will be great again. Yeehaw! Finally, it's all going to go our way. God has come to save us. But Matthew points out, 
that Jesus is fulfilling an old prophecy. Your king comes to you on a donkey. What's a donkey all about? It's not a war horse. Most kings, the kings who rule the empires of the world, will come on a war horse with chariots behind them in might and glory, and don't you dare oppose me or I'll ride right over you strength. Why is Jesus coming on a donkey? A donkey is very strong, but it doesn't look powerful. A donkey can endure a lot more than a horse can, believe it or not. And a donkey is not terribly handsome. You know, when they're foals, they can be cute, but a grown-up donkey just looks like a donkey, you know? <laughs> yeah. They're not much. They're the quintessential beast of burden. And you're not going to get far in life in Jerusalem if you don't have a donkey or know somebody who has a donkey. You're going to need one. So think back about the psalm that we just read through. There's a line in there that I kind of want to unpack a little bit because we tend to just sort of bounce right over it. But Jesus pulled this line out later when he was talking to the crowds. It's this one. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, do you know what a cornerstone is in the building? That's the first one you set in, in the main corner, but the, the thing about it is all the edges are true and straight and plumb. All the rest of the building gets measured and lined up to that stone. That stone is what makes the building true and straight and plumb. That's the chief cornerstone. So why did the builders reject a particular cornerstone? Well, one reason might be in the psalm, the psalm might be thinking about Israel, the nation of Israel, these tiny kind of donkey people. I mean, it's a small nation, not terribly rich, not terribly powerful, just tenacious and tough, gets overlooked by the world, but God has picked them to bless the whole world with. That might be what the psalmist is talking about. That would certainly be a valid reading. Or the psalmist might be talking about builders who are building the temple in Jerusalem. When you're building the holy temple, one of the things that the builders are not supposed to do is take a chisel to the stone. You're supposed to use stone that has not been worked by iron. If it's been touched by iron, you reject it. Is it possible even though the person who wrote this psalm lived before Jesus, we know it's inspired by God, is it possible that part of what God's talking about is the people who are trying to build the holy building of the church reject the cornerstone that was touched by iron? Think about Jesus being touched by iron. This isn't right for the Messiah to be nailed. Reject it. That might be part of what's going on here. Or it might be that the builders of the world's temple, those outside the nation, outside of God's chosen people, their concept of how you build a religion, they might be rejecting the whole concept of what Jesus is offering, of the humility and service. We're going to talk a lot about the empire of the world contrasted to the kingdom of God. 
So when I use the word empire, I'm talking about the world as we know it ruled by the powers and principalities, both ours and the spiritual ones. The empire. It's all about power and control and domination and running things the way it wants to. And contrasting that with the kingdom of God, which is all about worshiping God and serving one another. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Okay. All right. So we got part of what's going on on Palm Sunday is we have to choose. Are we going to choose God's kingdom or the empire of the world? Because both have something to offer and God is about to force the choice. We're not going to be able to be agnostic forever. Pretty soon we're going to have to pick one to serve. And here's what happens pretty quickly right after Palm Sunday. Jesus says, come in to Jerusalem. The people have been waving their branches. And then here's what happens. Jesus gets arrested. We go to Matthew 27. Jesus has appeared before Pilate. Pilate has said, innocent. The crowd is saying, kill somebody. And Pilate says, now it's the governor's custom at the festival to release one prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus called the Messiah? There's two kinds of king. Which Jesus do we want? To which king are we going to submit? Let's unpack Jesus Barabbas. And yes, his first name was Jesus. It was a very common name. It might as well have been John or Paul. You know, I mean, it was a name anybody might have. But Barabbas happened to have the name Jesus too. And another interesting thing here, Barabbas means son of the father. So we've got Jesus, the son of the father, hauled up against Jesus, the son of the father over here. <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting choice. Barabbas is the world's answer to solving oppression. And I want you to just imagine for a minute that Russia and Red China have got together with North Korea and they took over America. We lost. They have moved in, they're driving our cars, they ate our lunch, we're paying taxes, we're paying more taxes than they are. We are being occupied by people we cannot fight against. What is the world's normal response to that? Hmm? Schwarzenegger, sure, yeah. Get some guns, sharpen some sticks, go to war. Yeah, and Israel was no different. There were plenty of messiahs in that day who would get some rebels together and pitch a fight against the Romans and get annihilated, and then the next one would come along and they'd say, oh, we're going to throw over Rome. And it was, that was kind of what was going on. So the fact that the crowd thought that Jesus was going to overthrow Rome was nothing new. He was just the next one in the line. He'd been doing some pretty impressive miracles, and they thought, wow, I think this might, this might be the one. This might be the one, guys. Come on, let's get ready. But he wasn't unique as far as they knew. Jesus Barabbas had made his career. The reason he was famous, the reason he was in prison under a death sentence, he was a rebel. He was a zealot. He had been getting people together and causing sedition and doing murder to overthrow Rome, and they caught him and threw him in prison He's for the chop. 
He was going to overthrow the oppressor the world's way. He was the world's version of a messiah. He's the king of the empire. The church, unfortunately, has often chosen Barabbas. I'm sorry to say it, but it's true. We frequently fall for that trick. Now, why on earth would we fall for choosing the king of the empire instead of the king of the kingdom? Well, think about it. Barabbas is selling power and, and revenge and throw them down and power. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's all about getting power back and getting revenge and having it our way. Jesus, the Messiah, the stone the builders rejected, implies a whole different way of life, the way of the kingdom. Now think about this. Jesus is saying, here's how you follow me. In humility and repentance and submitting to one another in love. That's an anti-American word, submit. Right? Get the log out of your own eye. Return good in the face of evil. Go the extra mile. Turn the other cheek. Forgive 70 times 7. Excuse me? Give without expecting a return? Bear one another's burdens? Take care of the weak? Put the needs of others ahead of your own? Reject your own pride and hatred and greed? Become like a little child? Give up your rights for the sake of others? Lay down your lives for each other? Give all you have to the poor and follow him? Die to yourself? Of course the church frequently rejects Jesus the Messiah. I mean, we've all done it, right? We've all done it. So two kinds of king, which Jesus do we want? To which Jesus are we going to submit? Are we going to do Jesus Barabbas? The way of the empire with God as our servant? The church of the empire uses God as a really cool tool. The empire has many names. In Jesus' day, it was Rome. In the days of Israel before, it had been Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or the nations. It could even be the temple authorities. Whoever has the power, whoever's got the guns, whoever controls the purse strings. Here's the way it is in the empire. The truth is whatever they say it is. The emperor has the power and the right to use it. The emperor gives you prosperity and security and stability and protection. You have the right to be complacent in the knowledge of your own righteousness. Just don't rock the boat. In return for all these gifts, you keep the machinery of my rule working smoothly and agree with what I do and turn a blind eye to my failures and my injustices. We live in a country that falls victim to that kind of outlook all the time. I mean, it's fun to live in the powerful seat, right? In the empire, piety, piety and power meet. Religion and politics kiss each other. 
Religious powers enjoy their position of prestige by endorsing the political powers. All right? The bishop crowns the king. The king says, do what the bishop says. It's an unholy marriage. Political powers rely on religious powers to endorse their decisions and their claims of righteousness. I rule because God said I rule. Right? The emperor needs God to promote his ends and stupefy the people. Religious people in positions of power have a vested interest in preserving the status quo. If the emperor is keeping the church rich and prosperous, then the church is going to keep the emperor in power. And this isn't just Rome. This is the way the world works. When religion and political power get together, the result is bloodshed and oppression. Because sooner or later, somebody is going to get tired of getting stepped on and pushed around and fight back, and then they're going to get squashed. Or somebody's going to have something the emperor wants, and they're going to get robbed. And God's going to be called in to bless it while it's happening. I'm enslaving you because you don't know God and your slavery is going to be great because I'll teach you all about God. You shouldn't have this wonderful land because we're the Christians, so we're taking it. You know, or whatever. You're the wrong kind of Christian, so beat it. Okay? Think about the German people, perfectly decent people, Christians going to church, when Hitler comes to power, too many of those churches decided we're going to tell the people that Hitler is a-okay from God. That'll keep us from getting shot. You know, and that's how Dietrich Bonhoeffer got hung is because he said, wait a second, that's not what God wants. Okay? Or think about the massacres of various indigenous peoples all around the world under the name of religion because the true God in that case is not Christianity, it's capitalism. Nothing wrong with capitalism unless you start worshiping it and, you know, down you go. I have a video that I'd like you to look at, a guy named Greg Boyd. He's talking about what happened to the early church when the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the state religion. And we'll just play that video. It's, it's five minutes, but it's very interesting stuff. Here's a little bit of history that explains it. You see, the way we read the Bible changed radically in the 4th century. Up to the 4th century, the first three centuries of church history, when, when early Christians thought about God, they thought about this. This is a painting that comes much later, but it reflects the picture of God. God is most definitively, most decisively, a, the God who was crucified for us and for all people. God is a humble God, the meek God, the God who would rather be slain by enemies rather than slay his enemies. That's the heart of God. That's how they thought about God. And they understood, as all of us must, that the, the most fundamental job of a Jesus disciple is to imitate that, to imitate that love to all people at all times. They understood that. They were a persecuted minority in the Roman world, and, 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 and so they just lived this countercultural, beautiful lifestyle of outrageous love. They got slaughtered all over the place, but they didn't mind because they knew that this life is just a little prelude to the real thing, and that's how the church grew. Something... Terrible happened in the beginning of the 4th century. In 312, the emperor Constantine allegedly got a vision. Uh, and the vision told him to put 
uh, the first two letters of Christ on the shields of his soldiers, and he'd march into battle against this other uh, rival emperor, and he would get the victory. See, this is how pagans think. Throughout history, they thought, that, you know, the, the God who kills the most people is the greatest God. And so he was getting a revelation that the God of the Christians is the greatest God. How? How do you know that? Well, because he's going to help me kill people. This is how it works in paganism. And Constantine's a good pagan, so he gets this vision. He thinks it's of God. Personally, I think it was of the devil if the vision happened at all. It may just be one big legend. And he goes into battle and he wins. So the next year, he legalizes Christianity. It had been illegal to be a Christian up to that point. He legalizes it. And then he begins to throw money at the Christians. He begins to throw power at the Christians. He begins to throw pagan temples at the Christians, saying, you get to have your own temples. That's when we started calling a building a church. When in the New Testament, the people are the church, not a building. But see, the Christianity becomes overnight paganized. In the Gospels, when, when, when Jesus is offered all the power of the kingdoms and all the glory of the kingdoms, Jesus and the gospel authors see it as a temptation of the devil because it's going to detract from our looking like Calvary, doing things a Calvary way. So it's a temptation of the devil. Now the same author is on the table by the same being. But instead of seeing it as a temptation, people like Augustine and Eusebius and other church fathers say, oh, God is blessing us, blessing us with the power of the sword, the power to run things. And why not? Because we're the superior righteous people. So Christianity becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire in 382. And in 383, we read about the first Christian mob storming a pagan temple and murdering the pagan priest. Things have radically changed. When you pick up the sword, you put down the cross. And then we find this image of Jesus. This is an icon uh, around 500 AD. Now this is what Jesus looks like. Quite a stretch from the crucified Jesus. This is Jesus, and he's wearing the emperor's garments. He's a Caesar. And now they begin to see Jesus as this cosmic Caesar. And all the stuff about imitating Jesus and living the Calvary lifestyle, that all gets explained away, kind of gets filtered out. We thought that we'd have to imitate Jesus in his death, but it turns out, no, we can you know, jump right to the resurrection, and now we're going to rule the world. And now Christians begin to pick up the sword, and they think it's their job to conquer in Jesus' name. It's just like pagans have been doing throughout history, only now we're doing it in Jesus' name. You see, they're... They, they're once violence got into their heart and their lifestyle, well, it colored their perception. We, we make God after our own image, if we're not careful. We, make, we read the Bible after our own image. We read our country after our own image. We read history after our own image. So now Jesus looks a whole lot more like well, what the pagans always expected him to look like. He's the conquering militant Jesus. And so his followers start to imitate that. And then we have bloodshed throughout church history. And it goes on until this day. It explains why, despite all of the stuff in the New Testament about being humble and, and living this self-sacrificial lifestyle, despite all of that, many Christians have a militant view of God, a Caesar view of God, a sword-carrying view of God. It explains why many Christians spend much more time and are much more interested in passing laws against certain types of sinners than they are in serving other types of sinners. It's why many Christians deem other people's sins as worse than their own, even though Jesus explicitly tells us to do the opposite of that. See, we see what we want to see. We see what we expect to see, what we're conditioned to see, and we filter out everything else. It's why many Christians, for many Christians, being right is more important than being loving. It's why many, for many Christians in America, they get very antsy, maybe even aggravated, if you question the righteousness and the God-favored status of America. Some of you who are listening to this message right now are experiencing that. Because, see, we're, we're, we're heirs to this Constantinian paradigm, this way of looking at the church and at God and at Jesus. 
It's why many Christians get really livid when you start to question the appropriateness of, 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 of Christians killing for God and country and the military. You see what we want to see. If we're not careful and to, to call into question maybe things that are obvious to us, well, then we're defined by our culture. It's very hard for fish to notice the water they swim in. It's hard for us to stay attentive to the air that we breathe. Unfortunately, in this fallen world, the water's polluted and the air's polluted. And if we're not consciously fighting against it, we're assimilating it, and it jaundices, it colors the way we look at the world, the way we look at God, the way we look at ourselves, the way we read the Bible. Yeah, hard to hear, but important. Think about it. When Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted, what was the temptation that Satan offered in three different ways? Power. Take your power, Jesus. And Jesus rejected it. Think about the Old Testament. Israel originally was a theocracy. They followed God. They followed the temporal, the, the pillar of fire and the, the pillar of smoke, and they went where God told them, and they did what God said. And then after a while, they said, hey, could we have a king like the other nations? Which kind of ticked God off. He was not happy about it, but he gave them a king, and what happened? The king went for power. He had to. He's a king. And then it went downhill from there. I've got a couple of, of articles that I've, they're short articles that I want to read to you about this same process going over and over again. Um, this one starts in Ethiopia. From early times, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, which they are Christians, it's just a different chunk of Christians. From early times, Orthodox Christianity has been the dominant religion in Ethiopia. It's gone through a process of becoming the official state religion and becoming more and more enmeshed in the political power of the government, leading to state-sponsored massacres of non-Orthodox Christians, Jews, Muslims, and others. In the 1950s, Emperor Haile Selassie's religious policy was more tolerant. He permitted Protestant missionaries to proselytize the non-Orthodox peripheries of the empire, but Ethiopia officially remained an Orthodox empire. The emperor titled himself, the emperor titled himself the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, elect of God. That's what the emperor is calling himself. The person of the emperor is sacred, his dignity is inviolable, his powers are indisputable. The name of the emperor shall be mentioned in all religious services. <laughs> Protestantism and Islam remained marginalized at best. This Christian imperialism is resurging in Ethiopia today. The archaic vision promises to unify Ethiopia and restore its divine glory, but it appears to be shattering Ethiopia and fueling catastrophic suffering instead. Okay, they're half a world away. How about America? Who else grew up with that wonderful hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers? That was a great one, isn't it? I love that hymn. Marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banners go. That is supposed to be about Christian soldiers as people of faith who wield the sword of the spirit by caring for our neighbors and people in need in a war against injustice and hate. That's the war Jesus is fighting. That's where we follow. But now, instead, in America, there's a group of Christian soldiers waging a vastly different war. 
These soldiers believe the American nation is owned by Christianity as they define it, that the government should take steps to keep it that way. Their war is to claim the United States as a Christian nation with an official Christian culture. In their view, Christians are America's first citizens and have a presumptive right of dominance in American law and public policy. This movement has grown in recent years, enlisting angry, aggrieved, militant people who now use violence to preserve what they call Christian values. Youch. If we exalt ourselves and humble God, he will humble us. Brothers and sisters, you don't want to get humbled by God. Mm -mm. Psalm 18, verse 27. You save those who are humble, but the humble, those who are proud. God glorifies the humble. He opposes the proud. Has anybody here been opposed by God lately? It ain't nice, is it? Yeah. Israel's God makes demands on his people. He holds them accountable for what they do with their blessings. God looks for fruit. If he doesn't find fruit, he cuts down the tree. If the branch is not in him and withers, it gets thrown on the fire and burned up. It's useless to him. The prophet of God, who could be an Old Testament prophet, could be John the Baptist getting ready for Jesus. The prophet of God speaks a different truth to the empire. The prophet says the empire's justice is not God's justice and everything is not okay. Repentance is not just an expression of public piety, but a total rejection of the empire, its values, its demands, and its reality. To enter the kingdom of God, one must turn traitor to the empire. Thank God we're in America where turning traitor just gets us mocked. You turn traitor somewhere else, you could get shot. But that's what's required. So that's Jesus Barabbas, king of the empire. How about Jesus the Messiah, king of the kingdom, the way of the kingdom with us as God's servants? God's religion is about following God's goodness in humility and service. All the questions we have, remember, good old Micah, he's shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God? In the case of human beings, humble means obedient. When Jesus is humble, he's just not being God in our face. When we're humble, we have to be obedient to God. Humility takes its own blessings, its own resources, its own rights, and does not cling to them, but uses them to uplift, strengthen, encourage, and prosper its neighbors. That's what humility is all about. Not me first, not me for mine, but me for you, you first. And I don't suffer for that because you're also saying, you first, Wheezy, ours for you. It's the beloved community. That's the kingdom of God. If we humble ourselves and obey God and live it his way, he will exalt us.
We don't have to exalt ourselves. God will exalt us as we humble ourselves and obey him. Think about this. Jesus didn't have to live as a peasant. Jesus is God Almighty. Why did he come to earth and live as a peasant? With powers that he had, he could have just, you know, brushed Rome away with one hand and thrown open the doors of the temple with the other. He could march right into the Holy of Holies, set up his throne in there and be perfectly justified, not doing anything sinful, and nobody could oppose him, that's for sure. Why did he choose humility and meekness? I mean, really, why? If his whole mission is to show the glory of God to the people of God, why not be godly? Is it possible that we don't understand what godly is? Is it possible that he is being godly? By stripping down and washing our feet? By being stripped naked and beaten and nailed to a stick? Maybe that is godliness. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And look at how submission becomes exalted. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Amen? At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to glory of God the Father. As we follow Jesus and obey God, God will exalt us. God will make our way straight. God will preserve our hearts no matter what our bodies have to go through. God will renew the world for us and live with us. So two kinds of king, which Jesus do we want? To whom will we submit? God sent Jesus, the king of his upside-down kingdom. He's not what we expected or wanted. The people in Jerusalem expected glory over Rome and victory. What Jesus offers is victory over death and glory in him. So do we want to take America back for God by using political power? Because that's not the way of Jesus. What would be the way of Jesus? How could we take America back for God? As if America's ever submitted to God. What about radical love, radical service? What about every time somebody sees a cross, it comes with a smile and a hand out to help? That'll take a whole bunch of America for God. Think about some of the people who have had every right in the world to oppose their oppressors with violence. Think about Martin Luther King. Every right in the world to get violent. Enough is enough. But that's not what he chose. He chose to speak truth to the empire the way God wanted it done. 
and he had success. God exalted him. More work to do, but we're going to do it God's way. Think about Bishop Tutu in South Africa fighting apartheid. Every worldly right you can think of to be violent and take up arms and blow the place away. But that's not what they chose. They chose to do it God's way. And God gave them success. There's more work to do, but they're having success by doing it God's way. Think about even Gandhi, a Hindu for crying out loud. Even a pagan can see that God's way is better. Okay? So we're going to close with our own processional, with your palm leaves that you got at the door. Think about which Jesus you want to lay your life down before. Your choice is in your own heart. But we're going to stand up and come forward just as if we were taking communion and lay your palm leaf as a symbol of your life at the foot of whichever Jesus you choose. This cross is covered in purple. Is it the victory of the world? Royalty the way the world understands it? Or is it the victory of God Almighty? The King of kings and Lord of lords who has come to die for us. Deborah is going to sing for us. And I just ask that you would stand up and make your way forward and lay down your palm to who you want to lay it to.